listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Good evening in Shavuot Tov. It's 8 p.m. in Israel, Saturday, February 24th, 2024. This is Arye O'Sullivan with the news. The Israeli delegation returned this morning from Paris where they were negotiating for the hostage deal. Sources close to the negotiation said that a new framework was agreed upon and that there was progress and an agreement could be signed soon. The war cabinet is expected to meet tonight and receive an update on the matter. Still, a senior political official said a deal was still far away, but that Hamas had dropped some of its demands and was also keen on making a deal now. Khan 11 reported that Israel strongly opposes the demand for the return of Palestinian residents to the northern Gaza Strip on the reasoning that that would allow Hamas to renew its control of the area. Three other issues in dispute are the increase in humanitarian aid, the duration of the ceasefire, and the number of security prisoners to be released. The loss of control over the Gaza Strip is not the only thing that worries Hamas. Palestinian sources have said that the terrorist organization is now mainly disturbed by moves to cut them out of any role in Gaza's future. The United States is currently holding talks with the Palestinian Authority, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates about the day after the war. The Biden administration has informed Israel that one plan involves integrating the Hamas into the PLO. 140th day of the war. The IDF intensified fighting in Han Yunus and Gaza City's Zaytun neighborhood. In Zaytun, an IDF drone struck a terrorist squad attempting to launch an anti-tank missile at ground forces. The squad was eliminated. In Han Yunus, the IDF fighters raided the Hamas infrastructures, eliminated a Arab terrorist, and captured the house of a senior Hamas military intelligence officer. In another raid on several buildings, the fighters located mortar bombs and cartridges hidden inside of UNRWA sacks. Also, Klochnikov's assault rifles, bullets, grenades, explosives, drones, RPG launchers, explosive charges, and means of communications were located and confiscated. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says 92 people were killed in the enclave in the past 24 hours, taking the Palestinian toll in the war to 29,600 people. The figures cannot be independently verified and do not separate between civilians and terrorists. UNRWA, meanwhile, has stopped delivering humanitarian aid to the northern Gaza Strip, blaming problems in picking up supplies from the crossing points after they are delivered to the Gaza Strip and safety concerns due to the breakdown of law and order. The IDF has released the name of a fallen officer, Major Eyal Shumanov, 24, from Carmiel. He was killed in fighting in the northern Gaza Strip. His death brought to 577, the number of fallen since the ground offensive began. In the north, sirens warning of a suspected drone infiltration sounded in the Upper Galilee before noon. Sirens turned out to be false alarms. During the day, an IDF drone struck a squad of Hezbollah terrorists hiding in a building in southern Lebanon. Fighter jets attacked other structures used by Hezbollah in three villages, and IDF artillery shelled a number of targets in Lebanon. Several rocket launches were detected toward the areas of Arab Aramshe, Khanita, and Hardov. The IDF attacked the sources of fire in Lebanon territory. In Lebanon, Mohammed Alavia, a top Hezbollah field commander, died of his wounds after being targeted in an airstrike on his vehicle blamed on Israel on Thursday. 
The United States Military Central's command announced that its forces destroyed seven mobile anti-ship cruise missiles deployed in Iranian-backed Houthi-held areas in Yemen. They said the missiles were ready to be launched against merchant and U.S. Navy ships in the Red Sea. These missiles were destroyed because they posed a threat, and it was decided to act against them as a means of self-defense since they presented an imminent threat, the U.S. Central Command said. The IDF has mapped out the houses of two of the three Arab terrorists who carried out the deadly roadside attack near Malay Dumim this week that killed one Israeli and wounded 13 others. The mapping is ahead of the potential demolition and was in the largely Bedouin town of Zartra near Bethlehem. And U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that Washington was disappointed by the government's decision to approve the construction of approximately 3,000 housing units in Judea and Samaria following Thursday's terrorist attack. Blinken added that according to the policy of the United States, building new settlements is not beneficial to the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians and is against international law. Foreign Minister Shokats has charged the United Nations with cooperating with Hamas terrorists and ignoring the crimes committed against Israelis. Katz made the accusations after a group of UN experts called for an arms embargo in Israel. Katz said since the October 7th massacre, the UN has cooperated with Hamas terrorists and is trying to undermine Israel's right to defend itself and its citizens. That's our news update for this Saturday night. Thanks for listening. And now over to our pre-recorded program. listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Good evening and welcome to our Saturday night program, recapping the top news stories we covered this week. I'm Arie O'Sullivan. Let's get started. This week saw the rejection of the attempt to force a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians amid the ongoing war against Hamas and efforts to return hostages. We also examine a report of systematic sexual assault by Palestinians on Israelis in the war and look into how the ultra-Orthodox community feels about mounting attempts to draft their young men, especially now during the war and other news. The government and Knesset this week approved a declarative resolution opposing unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. The move followed efforts by the United States and Arab partners to push for the creation of a Palestinian state. President Isaac Herzog said that speaking now about a Palestinian state or a two-state solution was a reward for terrorism. He was speaking at the Munich Security Summit. What happened in October 7th is that uh, peaceful communities on an internationally recognized boundary since 1949 were slaughtered. And this, and, and, and people celebrated on the other side in the Palestinian camp. They celebrated this. And I expect people who want to make peace with us and people who want to move on in a vision of peace in the region. And I do believe adamantly that Israelis and Palestinians deserve peace. And they should find ways and means to move towards peace and that the pain inflicted must not recur. But for that, we have to hear and, and see an understanding that terror cannot be accepted in any way. And this is what I said. Israelis are traumatized so much that to come to tell them now two-state solution, a Palestinian state, is, is, is not, is, cannot be achieved if we don't deal with the innermost question of Israelis. How does it guarantee 
guarantee safety to me and to my family and to my neighbors and to my nation. Israelis are worried. You expect them to divide the land and then say, oh yeah, but uh, okay, who runs the other entity and how do we make sure terror will not recur? So I think we should offer a vision of peace and we should definitely look into a horizon of peace and I never shy away from things that I I believe in, but I think that we have to add an element of real reality in a, a re, of real life into this. It won't happen if we don't find real solutions for the security question of Israel. If there are ways to address that issue that you rightly stress, the, the security uh, safety of your country and the people who live in it, if that can be ad- addressed, is there in your mind a pathway toward a two-state solution? So I would say that saying now automatically a Palestinian state or a two-state solution is kind of giving actually, without intention, kind of credit or the award to the fact that Hamas launched a war against us. I don't want to be there. I want to do something else. I say if we want to win and we show victory against the empire of evil and its proxies, we have to move towards the inclusion of Israel in the region with a major agreement with our regional partners, including Saudi Arabia, and in it find the right formula for peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And that's what we have to look for. President Isaac Herzog. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, in an address to the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, said the international community should put pressure on Qatar to put pressure on Hamas. Netanyahu, in his remarks, also condemned the statements by Brazil's president comparing Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza to the Nazi genocide of the Jews. Here's an excerpt from the Prime Minister's statement. We have faced an attack of savagery that is unparalleled since the Holocaust. We haven't seen such cruelty directed against the Jewish people since the Nazi genocide. We've seen children murdered in front of their parents, parents murdered in front of their children, women raped and beheaded after being raped. We've seen uh, youngsters burned alive in death pits. We've seen mothers and babies kidnapped by these monsters. We've seen them rejoice over this savagery, something that even the Nazis refused to publicize. But they came in, these killers, with GoPro cameras to proclaim to the world, to their people, what kind of cruelty and what kind of inhumanity they were capable of. With fiendish glee, they showed this murderous, horrible, action that puts us in front of a huge challenge. And our challenge and our goal can be summarized in two words. Total victory. Today, the president of Brazil, by comparing Israel's war in Gaza against Hamas, a genocidal terrorist organization, to the Holocaust, President Silva has disgraced the memory of six million Jews murdered by the Nazis, and he's demonized the Jewish state like the most virulent anti-Semite, he should be ashamed of himself. But I want to tell you, none of this will stop us. None of this will stop us. None of it. 
We're committed to total victory, and total victory means the release of the hostages. This is not something that is that is simple. It's very hard. I'm not sure that any government has faced quite such a predicament. It has horrible dilemmas. The release of hostages is uh, an imperative in, uh, in the Jewish tradition, but it faces, it puts decision makers in very difficult situations. You know, when you're young and you're a soldier in a special unit, you don't quite understand that. Because I've had my own personal experience. This has accompanied me in my life. I uh, was wounded in the rescue of hostages uh, from a hijacked Sabina airplane. My older brother, uh, Yoni, died while leading the Entebbe rescue of 103 Jewish hostages. Recently, we uh, achieved the release of 110 hostages. That's a very important number. It's not enough. We still have a way to go. But we released the majority of hostages, which is of living hostages, which is very, very crucial. And most recently, a few days ago, we achieved a, a wonderful rescue of two hostages, two additional hostages, by our brave soldiers. Our formula is very simple. The release of hostages can be achieved through strong military action and tough negotiations, very tough negotiations. That uh, tough position has to involve the exertion of pressure. And the exertion of pressure is not merely on Hamas itself, but on those who can exert pressure on Hamas, beginning with Qatar. Qatar can press Hamas as no one else can. They host Hamas leaders. Hamas is dependent on them financially. And I urge you to press Qatar to press Hamas because we want our hostages released. I hope that we can achieve a deal soon to release more of our hostages. But deal or no deal, we have to finish the job to get total victory. I had recently a very good conversation with President Biden. I very much appreciate the support that he and the U.S. government have been given us since the beginning of the war. Sometimes we have differences of opinion, but we've been able to overcome them. And I want to tell you that I agree with President Biden that we need to do everything in our power to get civilians out of harm's way as we complete the job. We've destroyed three-quarters of Hamas's fighting battalions. It's very important to understand. They have organized battalions where people, where commanders give orders to companies or to uh, uh, to organize uh, fighting formations, and you can say you can have 100 people attack the Israeli army from this direction, or 50 people attack them from that direction. Once you destroy the battalions, there is no organized command and control structure. You're left with individual terrorists, which we mop up with ground action, which is much less intense. We cannot leave a quarter of Hamas's terrorist battalions intact. No one would do that in the case of fighting ISIS. You wouldn't leave a quarter of ISIS intact in a defined territory. You wouldn't even think about that. And you didn't. America finished the job with its allies. We will finish the job here with our brave soldiers. And we will make sure that the civilian population has a way to get out of harm's way to safe corridors and to safe zones. 
I hope we can also reach an understanding on the day after Hamas. But here's the critical thing. The day after Hamas is the day after Hamas is destroyed. The emphasis is on after. After Hamas is removed from the scene. And I can tell you one thing that I think we can agree on many things. But one thing Israel cannot agree to is an international diktat that would seek to unilaterally uh, recognize a Palestinian state, basically force a Palestinian state on Israel after the horror of October 7th. And you should know that the people of Israel are really united in this. I brought today uh, a resolution before the government. I want to read it to you. Israel utterly rejects international diktats regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. A settlement, if it is to be reached, will come about solely through direct negotiations between the parties without preconditions. Israel will continue to oppose unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Such a recognition in the wake of the October 7th massacre would be a massive and unprecedented reward to terrorism and would prevent any future peace agreement. This passed unanimously in the government today. It will pass tomorrow in the Knesset, I think with an overwhelming majority. And I hope that the conference can consider adopting this statement as well. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The war against Hamas. Reserve Major General Yaakov Amador, a former National Security Advisor and former head of the Research Department in the IDF's Military Intelligence Directorate, estimates that the IDF ground operation in Rafah will commence at the end of the month or the beginning of March, when the fighting in Khan Yunus is completed. Towards the end of um, February, the beginning of March, we will finish in Khan Yunus and we will move forces into uh, Rafah. Rafah will be... Um, uh, in Rafa, there are four battalions of Hamas. All of them will be dismantled by the IDF. will take the whole merge probably and maybe to the end of April. This is the time that we will finish the stage one in, uh, in the ground forces man- uh, maneuvering in Gaza. We will move to the second phase, as we did in the north. It's specific raids of battalions or brigades. Uh, into specific areas based on intelligence that we are that we are uh, uh, that we will have a lot of the intelligence is coming from the papers which have been confiscated and other data means that have been cons- uh, confiscated by us in headquarters of Hamas and interrogation of Hamas uh, terrorists many of them are now instead of fighting and, and being killed they are uh, surrendering so we have a lot of information in our hands and we will have to build, based on this information, uh, the next stage of raids, specific raids into place to which we want to arrive, to destroy, to kill if there is any resistance in, the, um, in, the, in, the, in, in any of these um, uh, places. It will be a, a group of Hamas that will try to defend the area. They will be killed. Um, and we will destroy whatever we will find on the ground and under the ground. And under the ground, it's very interesting. We learned a lot through the operation. We have now um, capabilities that we didn't have in the beginning of the of the operation. Um, there are a few uh, special forces units that 
are now specialized, specialized, specialized in the fighting under the, the, in the tunnels. And we have now technology and capabilities and units which um, can do the, the job. And slowly, slowly, we will arrive to all the important part under the, under the ground as we are doing on the ground. Uh, it will take probably a year. So I, if I have to assess kind of a very, um, not correct, but my version of the, of the schedule, I, I would say that till the, till the, um, the, um, the, um, the first of, of May, we will finish to gain control all over Gaza Strip on the ground and under the ground. And another six months to a year to clean the, the Gaza Strip uh, totally. And then it will be the day after in which someone will have to take responsibility for a, for a Gaza. Uh, who will do it? I don't know. I think it's too early to, to make the decision. If you make the decision today, we will have a third partner that will be involved and will give us advices and demands. Why? Because he, if he is the one that we want him to take responsibility after the, the war, so he should be involved in the decision during the war. I think it's too early to make this decision. The IDF has enough um, freedom to act as it is needed. Uh, it doesn't need any decision about the day after. And the, um, the decision about the day after will wait to see what will be the results of the, of the operation itself. Why it is so important to wait? Because, for example, there are voices in Israel saying the next um, regime in, in Gaza should be taken by the people of Gaza themselves, based on the, on the families, the clans, the, 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 the people living in Gaza. For that, you have to make sure that Hamas does not exist. Because if Hamas exists in Gaza, no one in Gaza will be ready to take any responsibility because it will be assassinated the day after. So this is an example why we should not make any decision now, but we have to wait to see what will be the results of the war and only then to make the decision. Now it's a time for learning all the alternatives. I found five, probably other people have more alternatives, but uh, it does matter. The decision should not be taken now. For that, we have to to wait. One of the options that people are speaking about is um, um, Palestinian um, independence state. With all due respect to all those who are speaking about it, I don't see that. I don't believe that in Israel today you will find even ten percent of the Israelis that will be ready to take the risk of living nearby a Palestinian state. I met very. Um, uh, I met people from the European Union who spoke about that, and I said, "Can you guarantee us that the first elections in the independent state will not be uh, um, that the Hamas will not win the elections, and we will find ourselves with independent state with a legitimate regime of Hamas based on open um, um, elections, and that will put Israel in a very grave situation." Because Hamas in Kalkelia means that they can hit my house with a cornet in Ranana. I, I don't know about many Israelis who will be ready to, to live around the, uh, what we will call Otef Kalkelia. I mean, the, the, the other side of the border, near Jerusalem, near Farsaba, near Petah Tikva, 
um, will be uh, controlled by Hamas. So after the experience of 7th of October, to speak about independence, independent uh, Palestinian state, it's out of, of the, um, the scope of probably 85% of the, of the Jews in Israel. And I don't know about many Arabs Israelis who will be um, happy to live nearby a Palestinian uh, Hamas-controlled state. Um, so I think that it's out of context, at least from the Israeli point of view, and the chance to convince Israelis to agree to such an agree to such an offer is almost zero. So people around the world can speak about it. In Israel, no one will agree. It's not just um, this government, it's probably the next government, whoever will be elected in Israel after the next elections that I don't know when will take part. Reserve Major General Yaakov Amidur. The Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel this week issued a report of the systematic acts of sexual assault that were committed on October 7th and on hostages in Hamas captivity. According to the report, the sex crimes were committed in four separate venues, at the Nova Festival, in civilian communities, on the IDF bases, and in the Gaza Strip. The information points to systematic groups of attacks on women and men, which were often committed in front of the victim's family members and friends. Some of the victims were murdered while being raped and others a short time afterwards. We spoke about the report with Orit Slotziano, Executive Director of the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel. We started collecting information all, uh, in, immediately after the 7th of October because in the end, 8th and the 9th of October, we in the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel already got information that sexual violence was part of this horrific terroristic attack. We decided from the beginning to start to collect collect all the information, whether it was public information or some information we got uh, because of our work in uh, rape crisis centers. And our purpose was to, to, to get a, a macro picture of what has happened. Uh, we, we, we based this report on uh, a lot of in, in, in the, uh, 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 interviews, media pub- publications, only uh, uh, media that, that was reliable, not, no social media, interviews we conducted, and also information that we had got, by, uh, which is not uh, public information. And we wanted to see what, where things happened and how they happened. Because we have in the association this, uh, this expertise of analyzing sexual violence. What we learned is uh, that uh, in all of the places where these uh, horrific attacks took place, they all use the same kind of sexual violence, doing horrific things, which I don't think it's good to talk about them in the radio, but really horrific things to the woman and also to some men. And what we see is systematic, systematic practices that happened again and again and again in in Nova, in the Kibbutzim, in the army bases, and, and also things that happened in captivity. Um, and the, what, what we understand from that, that it was not a mistake. It was not a thing that happened in one place. We understand from, from this analysis that this was a systematic approach, which, which uh, we can think that they got instructions 
from their commanders. The Hamas terrorists got instructions from their commanders to do these things. For example, to shoot women in their genitals. It was not one woman, many women. To cut limbs. It was not one person. It was many persons. These are sadistic acts which a human being cannot even digest, but it had happened. You say that sex crimes are also committed against men. How common was this? I cannot talk to you in numbers because we don't know the numbers and no one knows the numbers, first of all. Because as we all heard, the, the scene, the terrorist scene, was not inspected as a crime scene. But there are evidence of men being shot at their uh, intimate organs and other horrific things. And some things we, don't, I, we know and we cannot publicize. The mass information we have is about women. But there are also some men. Do we know the identities of the perpetrators? Uh, no, I, I, I have to emphasize, being the association of rape crisis centers in Israel, being an NGO who works for all these, over 30 years in the field of sexual violence, we have a lot of knowledge. But we're not at all experts of Hamas, and this is not our job in what we do. Our, we should, our job is to understand, help break the code of silence, fight, fight this silencing, and help the survivors. So we, uh, I don't think we could even know who the perpetrators Raiders are because as we all saw, many of the Hamas terrorists wore these hats and only we could see their eyes. They were smart enough to hide themselves and also they did not film themselves doing these atrocities. They did they did film themselves doing other stuff. But you know, the, the Israeli army, as you all hear, goes and then and collects a lot of they 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 capture they capture all kinds of terrorists in Gaza and interrogate them and I'm sure they learn things that we don't know yet and as I assume a time will pass we will have more information in Israel both from the perpetrators and also uh, there are survivors that are alive and now have to rehabilitate from what they suffered. One day will come when they will feel that they can speak, but it will take time, maybe a very long time. Now, I heard a Hamas spokesperson uh, denying that their members, their fighters, were responsible for these sex crimes. He said it must have been the civilians who crossed into Israel in the wake of the initial incursions by the Hamas terrorists. Is this feasible? In my opinion, not at all. Again, I want to be humble and to to stick to my job as the as executive director of the Association of Rape Crisis Centers. But this is why it's important why we did, because we saw systematic things happen all over the scene. And uh, it's very easy to put the blame on the, the civilians. I do not know how many civilians had guns, but what I know, and what we all know, that many bodies were shot at the genitals, at the heads to destroy the face and the genitals. In the beginning, yeah? So, and the... Uh, so it was saying that uh, all the uh, civilians came and did, uh, maybe they also did, you know, they are, uh, they are, many of them belong to the Hamas and maybe they all thought it's one big, uh, uh, I don't know what they thought, I don't want to go into their heads, but they saw what happened and went after the others. But the first ones that came in were the terrorists with the guns, guns and they did the things in the kibbutzim and in the party. Maybe... Also civilians, you know, it's all part of the same upbringing, by the way, the same culture that uh, lets these people do these horrific, sadistic 
unhuman things. And the Hamas spokesperson, they made a mistake because in the beginning they 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 photographed everything and put put anything everything online. Then they understood that it's uh, counter-effective and they took some things out. But many people immediately downloaded the things that they put on Telegram. And I did not know if you saw, but I wanted to see whatever would be seen because when I talk about things, I want to know what I'm talking about. And I saw some of the photographs and some of the clips and it's horrific. You know, it's not human. So what happens now? These findings will be forwarded to the United Nations? These findings were already forwarded, forwarded last week to the United Nations because we know and we met a, the, the group of Pramila Patan that came to Israel and stayed there and I met with them personally and tried to give them the much information I could give them and I was really impressed. They were serious women and they really cared. Their bandit I don't think is very large and they have they publish a report which is about all the countries who have sexual violence. It's not a specific report about about Israel. So, and I also know that they did not succeed to speak with a living uh, woman who wanted to share the, what happened because, of course, it's not the time right now. So, I'm not sure we can count on them, although they were serious and really, I really was impressed by the people I met with, the two, uh, three women I met with. Uh, but I think uh, being in Israel here and being an NGO and all people who care about this issue, we should talk about it, we should fight, we should influence the historical narrative. And we should not uh, let anyone deny what has happened. In contrast to those women who you've just praised, uh, there are elements in the international women's movement who refuse to acknowledge these atrocities because of, let's call it, pro-Palestinian sentiments or anti-Israel sentiments, if not anti-Israel hatred. Uh, Is this still the case? Yeah, you're right. This is very sad. Just uh, go on the website of UN Women and you will be distressed. And I look at that. You see every day, every two days, they post something about Hamas, uh, uh, the women in Gaza, how poor the women in Gaza are. I'm sure women in Gaza are suffering a lot now. They're suffering because their men, their leaders, did brutal, sadistic things. And the women pay the price. That's right. But I don't see any condemnation and any reference to the hostages. I would have expected from the UN woman, this international body, every day to write something. What, what, abuse of war. You should stand for the abused woman in the Hamas tunnels. No reference, nothing. This is disgraceful. And this is a big moral stain on history. And this organization, in my opinion, should be eradicated and a new one should be built because it actually betrayed its mission to the world and to the woman in the world. And it's very much in sharp contrast to uh, members of the Rape Crisis Center in Israel who went to Cyprus to stand in solidarity with the uh, British rape victim there uh, against the Israeli perpetrators. Yeah, I was one of these women. In the, we were 50 women who went there. And uh, we went there because we wanted to, uh, to, first of all, say that we are not like the... Uh, the, the the guys in Israel who were part of this gang rape, you know, although they were not convicted in the end, we wanted to show another face of the Israeli society, and uh, and uh, this taught me a lot that you have to 
stand up for women and not betray women because women all over the world suffer from the same problems and we have to fight that and I really think it's a disgrace uh, you and women other uh, women activists uh, the women from the Canada Canadian rape crisis centers and uh, many other women who uh, who've turned uh, their back on these uh, on us and the crimes our friends suffered from Arit Slutzianu, Executive Director of the Association of Ripe Crisis Centers in Israel. The full board of the Democrats Abroad Israel has resigned from leadership positions in the International Umbrella Organization due to what they termed, quote, the hostile environment in Democrats Abroad against Jews in general and American Jews living in Israel in particular. All eight members of the Democrats Abroad Israel board voted in favor of the move, which took place in December. We spoke with Heather Stone, a former vice chair of the Democrats Abroad Israel, about the dramatic decision. Well, it was not an easy decision. We uh, did not go into this lightly. Um, it was uh, it was actually a, a process of, uh, I guess, actually several years in coming. Um, we'd had uh, quite a few incidences of uh, Israel being called out and... Uh, for special treatment and uh, some incidences of, uh, of anti-Semitism that had gone unaddressed by the organization. Um, but uh, specifically after the start of the war here in uh, October 7th, um, things just uh, got really out of hand. And... Uh, we uh, we felt that uh, we couldn't uh, we couldn't take it any longer, um, and uh, after a period of discussions with the senior leadership of uh, Democrats Abroad, we uh, we felt that we weren't being heard um, um, satisfactorily. Um, we had asked them to consider going to the ADL and uh, having uh, anti-Semitism training uh, for the leadership. And uh, basically what we got back was uh, an unsatisfactory answer that uh, they would consider having some sort of uh, listening session to hear, to hear our complaints. And this wasn't good enough for you? No, I don't think that we were, you know, that that we needed to be heard uh, um, as to why why we felt that uh, there were anti-Semitic uh, statements being made. Yes, there were anti-Semitic statements being made. We felt that uh, the organization and and the leadership knew that there were anti-Semitic statements. Being Can you made. give me some examples? Oh, there were there were statements about uh, about uh, about uh, Jews controlling uh, controlling uh, um, controlling uh, what's going on in the Biden administration. Um, that uh, that uh, Israel is a genocidal country. That what's going on in uh, Gaza is a genocide. Um, that uh, were um, that there were. I'm trying to think of all the statements that were being said about 
there were so many. I can't even begin to to encapsulate them all. But uh, but the, there were there was a there was a formal there was one formal statement that came out from one of the caucuses, which uh, described what hap- what was happening in Gaza as uh, indiscriminate bombing. Um, we made a formal complaint about that. Um, and uh, and then in informal communications channels, there were all kinds of people making comments about uh, Jews and Israel that were just pretty horrendous. You know, um, over the years, I've been interviewing um, your uh, counterparts in the Republican Party, uh, Republicans in Israel, Mark Zell, etc., and they've been saying that the Democratic Party is becoming increasingly very hostile towards Israel, if not uh, outright anti-Semitic. And uh, the Democrats uh, kept saying, you you yourself and the, your other board members kept saying, no, it's only a very vocal minority and it doesn't represent uh, the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Maybe your Republican um, colleagues were right. No, I, I think that it is just a vocal minority and it is just uh, a group of very vocal people in Democrats abroad who in this particular instance uh, because of who the leadership is, are not being uh, are not being uh, taken to task to to follow the Democrats abroad rules, which are to not comment on foreign policy, which would mean that they cannot uh, talk about uh, Israel and Palestine, um, which has been the strict policy before. Um, and that would have certainly limited um, the kind of comments that we would have seen coming, and I'm not saying that people might not have in their hearts uh, harbor some uh, some thoughts that I would uh, prefer not to hear, um, but, I, but we wouldn't have uh, been faced with it uh, in comments uh, in formal and informal um, communication channels. I understand there were nine members of the board of Democrats um, abroad Israel. Was the decision um, unanimous? At the time of, at the time of, at the, time of the, uh, of our departure, we were eight. Um, one had retired, had resigned earlier. Um, was the decision unanimous? The decision was unanimous. And yes. I understand it was taken way back in December. Why was it kept quiet until now? Um, it was taken in December. Um, we, it came out, uh, um, we, we did not want to publicize it. We were not looking to air our dirty laundry. Um, but, uh, but we, but we do feel that it is important that uh, that the Democratic Party faces uh, faces this issue uh, because uh, it is an issue um, that anti-Semitism uh, within the party is something that uh, that needs to be addressed and cleaned up. Do you still consider yourself a Democrat or a supporter of the Democratic Party? Absolutely. And you will Absolutely. vote Democrat in the election. Absolutely, and we will be supporting uh, Democratic candidates 
particularly those that support the uh, strong and unbreakable bond between Israel and the United States. You described these um, uh, factions or these voices as a minority, a vocal minority. But is it not true to say that they are not such a minority amongst the, the young activists within the party? And this may be uh, a mirror image of the future of the Democratic Party. Well, I think that uh, they are some uh, some of the young people, um, but not uh, certainly not uh, all. And uh, I think that as people get older, they also get wiser. <laughs> um, and uh, that they also get a sense of what is uh, good for the security of the country. And uh, certainly Israel is important for the security of, uh, of the United States. And finally, if you are a, um, an American or a former American now living in Israel and you're considering whether to vote or not and whether to consider voting a Democrat, this doesn't uh, all go well, does it? It could well put off many Americans here from voting Democrat. No, I think that uh, President Biden has done a wonderful job supporting uh, Israel during this war. And I think that the American administration has been a very strong uh, supporter of Israel. Um, and this has been a, you know, a, I don't think that there has been any any president who has been a stronger supporter of Israel than uh, President Biden. Um, and I think that uh, that Americans living here in Israel should feel strongly about uh, voting Democrat. Um, if you just saw the, the election in uh, New York 3, um, Tom Suozzi just won. He's also uh, a strong uh, Democrat uh, who supports Israel and the, Isra the American-Israel relationship. Um, he has, uh, from his district, uh, one of the hostages uh, is from his district, unfortunately. Um, he came to Israel uh, to support the family. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we're being, being a Democrat is not contradictory um, to, uh, to being an American and supporting, uh, supporting Israel. Um, we have plenty of uh, strong Democrats who support uh, the relationship between uh, Israel and the United States. And I think that everyone who has the right to vote um, in the United States elections should vote, should exercise their vote, should support uh, Democratic uh, candidates up and down the ballot, uh, President, Senate, and House, and give uh, President Biden the mandate that he deserves in order to be able to finish the job and uh, and bring uh, all of the support that Israel needs and that uh, he needs in order to um, bring greater greater um, prosperity to the United States. Heather Stone, a former vice chair of Democrats Abroad Israel. The draft of the ultra-Orthodox in the IDF and the military draft bill. We asked Yeshua Pfeffer, a Jerusalem community rabbi and founder of the IYUN Institute, how the ultra-Orthodox community has responded to the growing calls for a more equitable sharing of the burden of military service. Well, first of all, this isn't the first time we've had these calls. Obviously, they've been around for a long time. I would say, you know, a good three or four 
decades already that these calls have been um, heard and voiced around the Israeli public. But there's two big differences concerning what's going on now vis-a-vis or compared with what happened before. First of all, the call coming now, very interestingly, has not been emanating from, originating from the secular uh, Israeli left, which is usually the strongest calling for Israeli draft. It's often been coming from the Israeli left, or let's just call it more the, the, the secular areas of Israeli society, in the name of equality, equality in sharing the burden. The, the difference a bit of the call today is that much of it is actually coming from the religious Zionist sector in Israel, who has been sharing a great deal of the brunt of the actual combat fighting uh, in Gaza. And you can see that just from the casualties, but also from the identity of these soldiers. And they're saying, listen, we're also Orthodox. We're also engaged in Torah study. We also want to live a religious lifestyle, but we're there. You should be there too. And that's not coming necessarily from a place of equality. It's also coming from a place of brotherhood. We're brothers. We're together. You have to see this letter that was written by religious Zionist mothers. About a thousand of them have signed on this letter. It's addressed to Haredi mothers and says, listen, we're mothers just like you. We love you. We're one nation. Please send your children to the army. So it's a slightly different type of call and it it touches a chord, it touches a a kind of string that hasn't really been plucked a lot in the past, that's number one. But number two and more significantly, this is a war like we haven't had at least for 50 years and probably since 1948. And therefore this this time of war, which has also been a time of great unity, really strikes at a different, uh, the, the call for service in the IDF really comes on a very different backdrop to the usual call. The usual call, well, equality. But equality, you know, you don't get up in the morning in order to fulfill the value of equality, but you do get up in the morning in order to, to, to fulfill your calling as part of a nation, as, as part of a, a brotherhood of Jews living in uh, Eretz Israel, where there's something much more meaningful in, in that type of call, the kind of backdrop, the kind of unity that we've experienced. And therefore, there has been a lot more internal discussion within the Haredi communities about how do we respond to this. Uh, don't forget, we've had a lot of older Haredi individuals enlisting in the IDF. It's true, that's not a three-year service, and that's not going to do the trick in terms of what we need for the army. But there are a lot of different ideas being banded around in the Haredi space. How do we respond to this in an effective way? Tell us about some of these ideas. What possible solutions are emerging from the ultra-Orthodox community? Okay, so there are several ideas going around. The main tension is concerning the... Haredi youth. And that tension runs two ways. On the one hand, it's about the yeshiva students. In the Haredi mindset, in the Haredi self-understanding, yeshiva students should not be serving in the IDF. It's true that the original purpose of the exemption for yeshiva students was to rehabilitate the decimated yeshiva world from the Holocaust. That yeshiva world has been rehabilitated and it's now bigger than it ever was. 
But nevertheless, the, the mindset, the self-understanding is that Torah study is something which is vital for the Jewish people and therefore it shouldn't be touched even at the expense of not doing army service because of that sanctified status or status of uh, Torah study. At the same time, we know within Haredi society that there are literally thousands of young men in the Haredi space who are not engaged in full-time Torah study because not everyone is cut out for it. And therefore, part of the conversation is focused on those young Haredi men who are not engaged in full-time Torah study. And like I said, there's a great number of them and they're not in the army. So what can be done with them? Some are taking this in a direction of let's do these special programs with the army that enable them to integrate as part of a high-tech unit, cyber unit, computer unit. And there are already significant programs that are working well in that direction and are allowing for the integration of Haredim through the more computer cyber units in the IDF. There's a large program called CODCOD, CODE, right, CODCODE, whatever, that's where the name comes from, and it's doing well. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there are many volunteers Haredi young men who are volunteering in organizations like Zaka, like Hatsala, and so on. And there's a program right now which hasn't yet been realized, but it's in the thinking of how do we integrate that as part of home front? That Haredi is going to be part of the home front activities via these organizations. There are other thoughts about the home front too. But ultimately, uh, Mark, and I'll, I'll say this um, because I think it, it needs to be said, that these, these alternatives are important, they're good, but they're not enough. We need Haredim in combat duty. We need to bear the brunt together with the rest of Israeli society. And that track is a track called Netzach Yehuda. Netzach Yehuda is a Haredi battalion. That battalion over the years has been able to bring Haredim to the IDF, but only those whose profile is very distant from your visible Haredi, the guy that looks the part, the guy that's really a part of kind of mainstream Haredi society. And there's a lot of talk right now about how do we also think about more mainstream Haredi joining this Haredi battalion, which is a combat battalion in the IDF. One of the main issues is how do we work this out with the army? The army in the past years has not been very favorable to Haredi integration because it's complicated. It's complicated when you have an agenda of integrating women in almost every unit in the IDF. Well, with Haredi, that's not going to work. So how do you balance the agenda of integrating women on the one hand with integrating Haredi on the other? And also, Haredi units have their own kind of nature and character. The army in the past has had some difficulty with that, and that's had a price. That's that's exerted a cost concerning the operational status of Netzach So these are issues that are really being worked out as we speak. That there are you know several initiatives out there. And presumably, for a final question, you would agree with the argument that um, whatever solutions emerge can only come as a result of ongoing dialogue and will not be forced on the ultra orthodox community. I think that's just a very, very important point. You know, we, we don't want to go back to October 6th. October 6th, 
the nation was, you know, radically um, polarized and, you know, virtually at each other's throats. And part of that polarization was also related to the Haredim. Don't forget that those who opposed the judicial reforms were also demonstrating in Bnebrak of all places, not against the government, but against Haredi civilians. We don't want to go back there. And not going back there, I think, you know, it requires uh, the, the ability to compromise on all parts. The Haredi need to compromise by being more open-minded towards army service. This is urgent. In the past, it's been this division of labor. It's them and us. We don't do army. We do other things. They do army and economics and institutions and branches of government, and we do our things. That's got to stop. It's not them and us. It's a collective we, and we also do army service, even though that threatens to undermine some of the isolationist policy within Haredi society. But yes, that's the new reality of Israel. In any case, we can't be totally isolated when we're 1.3 million people and close to 15% of the Israeli population. So that's not going to happen anyway. We need to embrace that. But on the other hand, outside of Haredi society, there also needs to be a compromise in understanding that we have to translate this into Haredi parlance, into a Haredi language. This has to be um, realized in a way that's palatable within the Haredi space. And that will happen. I'm confident that will happen, but only through dialogue and creative, constructive thinking on how to make this as palatable as, as possible as we can within the Haredi space. I think it can be done. I think it needs to be done. The, the current moment is a moment of reconstructing what Israel is about. Haredi are a big part of that reconstruction of Israel. Yoshua Pfeffer, a Jerusalem community rabbi and founder of the IYUN Institute. That's our show for this evening. I'm Aryeh O'Sullivan wishing you a Shavuot Tov. And we leave you with this song, Don Quixote by Eric Einstein and Shem Tov Levi.